Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 41. We're going to be starting in verse 1 today, but I do, uh, I got to have some fun. I like math, and so I got to say that we've concluded then Genesis 1 through 40, right? We've concluded... Yeah, that's right. We're, I mean, we're we're getting we're getting there. We're getting done. Uh, there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. We've concluded 40 of those 50. We're 40 fiftieths of the way through, or 80 percent. So we're 80 percent of the way through our study through the book of Genesis. I didn't do the math though on how long that means we we have to go. What are we? We're three and a half years into it. So I guess another 20 percent would be nine months or so, something like that. So who knows? I mean, it looks like God willing, of course. <laughs> And you could probably feel it, too. We've picked up the pace a little bit as we've gone. You know, uh, we're able to cover more material. Obviously, Genesis chapter 1, that took a long time, right? <laughs> you talk about the six days of creation. I mean, that's going to take a while. Uh, but these chapters, we can breeze through pretty well. God willing, we might make it uh, halfway. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. So Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 14. But what I want to do is I want to start by reading the last verse of chapter 40. So would somebody mind reading verse 20? 23 of Genesis chapter 40. Yes, the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh, dear. Does that bring up what you remember from last week? Remember that the chief butler and the chief baker, they were in prison by the Pharaoh. They did something wrong. And uh, so they're both in there. They're both worried about their lives. They end up having dreams. Joseph is able, by God's help, to provide interpretations for the dreams. And the dreams come true just exactly as he predicted that they would. That one of the guys would be restored to his job and the other guy would lose his head. And it turned out that way. Well, the one that was going to get his job restored, Joseph was so assured that he was going to get his job back that he actually went to him and said, hey, when you're restored to your position, please tell Pharaoh about me. And I didn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't be in here. And, you know, hopefully he'll get me out. Hopefully, you know, I'll get a pardon of some sort from the Pharaoh and I'll be able to get out of this dungeon, this pit. All right. It was the same word, dungeon or pit, as the word that his brothers threw him into. All right. So he's gone from pit to pit as he's been uh, on his way to Egypt here. So you remember that was what he was asking of the guy who got his job back was, please remember me. Please remember me. And here we see the last verse. He didn't remember you. (laughs) He forgot about you. All right. So now we're going to see in verse one how much time elapses between the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41. Somebody might reading verse one. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Excellent. Thank you. Two full years, two additional years that he's been in prison, hoping... When is that guy going to talk to Pharaoh? Any day now, I'm hoping that the phone will ring and it'll be the governor pardoning me. I mean, it'll be the Pharaoh letting me out of this prison, out of this dungeon, right? And it just doesn't happen. It's two full years. By then, you pretty much would, okay, it's back to life at normal in the prison for me. You know, I guess tomorrow is not going to be any different from yesterday or today. So after two full years, he seems to have been forgotten. James Montgomery Boyce says this regarding this time that he's in prison, that Joseph is still in prison. He says, the story of Joseph's being forgotten by Pharaoh 
Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, leads to certain lessons. And then he goes through and leaves us with three different lessons, perhaps, that Joseph is learning during this time. Number one is stop trusting in men. Right? He put his trust in this guy. Hey, say something to Pharaoh. Oh, good. It's going to all work out. <laughs> stop putting your trust in men. Right? After two years, you know what? I'm going to stop putting my trust in men. Number two, allow disillusionment with man to turn you to the love and faithfulness of God. What does that mean? It means in your trouble, turn to God. All right? That's the shortened version. In your troubled times, turn to God. And then number three is wait for God. Wait, that, We have a hard time with that, don't we? I have a hard time with that. Waiting for God. He's got his own timeline. He doesn't care a whole lot about my timeline. He cares a lot about me, but he doesn't care about my timeline. He's got his own agenda. I need to recognize that my life doesn't get lived out on my own time frame. All right? If I'm devoted to God, I need to also submit myself to his timeline. And it may not match mine. All right? So those three things being stop trusting in men. In your troubled times, turn to the love and faithfulness of God. And number three, wait for God. So Joseph, by now, he's about 30 years old. All right. Last time we saw him, he was 28. That was in the last chapter. It's two years now. Uh, since then, so he's about 30 years old. He's been in Egypt for about 12 or 13 years now. 12 or 13 years. So he's 30 years old. So don't picture the little boy anymore, right? Don't picture Joseph in, in this situation here as the little boy. Or Joseph going in front of Pharaoh as the little boy anymore. He's 30 years old. He's probably got a big beard, big flowing beard. The Semites, all right, the, the Hebrews, they were hairy men. They had facial hair. Uh, the Egyptians, not so much. All right, and we're going to find out a little bit about that as we go. So he's 30 years old. He's got he probably got the big beard. He's probably kind of scraggly, right, because you don't get to go to the barber when you're in, in the dungeon. Right, so he's probably got the scraggliness going on. And what has happened in that time? Well, one of the things that we don't know about it, the author doesn't tell us, but you have to do the math and put the pieces together to find this out, that when he turned 29, when he was in about his 29th year, so in this two-year period, while he's been in prison, while he's been in this, this dungeon, Isaac has died. His grandfather has died in the land of Canaan. He doesn't know that. He doesn't get to go to the funeral. He's in jail. That was one of the things that happened in this two-year time period. This is also, let's call it the silent years, right? In Joseph's life, these two years in prison. This is probably a really formative time for him, too. Because this is when he's learning to trust God. If he hasn't already, all right? If you haven't already, spending two years in jail with nothing else to do is going to give you a lot of time to think about, where do I fit in God's plan? <laughs> where do I fit in God's grand scheme of things, all right? J. Vernon McGee says this regarding this passage. And before I say this, I want you to think about what's the setting, right? It's been two years he's been waiting on the cupbearer to get him out, right? He's been waiting for that to happen. J. Vernon McGee says, suppose the butler had said to Pharaoh, there is a prisoner down there who is innocent. He should not be there. He has been falsely accused. And he interpreted my dream for me. I sure would appreciate Pharaoh if you would let him out. Suppose Pharaoh had let him out. Don't you see what would have happened? He would have been at home in the land of Canaan at the time that Pharaoh needed him to interpret his dream. Sometimes what we desire would actually go counter to what God has planned, right? If he wasn't in the prison, if he was actually released, when Pharaoh has his dreams, as we're going to see, that he needs somebody to interpret it, and nobody can, Joseph would have been in the wind. He would have been gone, all right? And then J. Vernon McGee also says this. He sums it up by saying, God wants to keep him nearby, and prison is a convenient place to keep him. There will be no difficulty in Pharaoh finding him when he needs him. Maybe you're in a place, and it feels like a dungeon. It feels like a pit. It feels like a stagnant place that you just can't get out of. Maybe God is keeping you there for the right moment. 
I don't know. It could be. I don't know what your situation is in life, but there's a possibility that, like Joseph, God is keeping you in a place where he can have you ready at the right time. Maybe that's encouraging somebody. Maybe not. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. So we're talking about Pharaoh. According to the New King James Version Study Bible, the Egyptians believed Pharaoh was a god and the key to the nation's relationship to the cosmic gods of the universe. While Pharaoh ruled, he was the son of Ra, the sun god, and the incarnation of the god Horus. He came from the gods with the divine responsibility to rule the land for them. His word was law, and he owned everything. The Pharaoh was the head of the army as well as a central figure in the nation's religious life. As an intermediator between gods and people, the Pharaoh functioned as a high priest in many of the temples in Egypt. We read this story, though, and we go, oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, who is this, though? Which Pharaoh is this? Because they had lots of them, right? We don't know. We don't know who the Pharaoh was. We're not given the details of that. It's as if the author, it's as if Moses, in writing these stories down for us, doesn't give us the details of who the Pharaoh is here, nor at the Exodus, at the time of the Exodus. Why would that be? If it was intentional, why would he not give us that information? One of the thoughts, and one of the theologians at least, brings this up. Because Pharaoh thinks of himself as a god, and all the Egyptians think of him as a god, to put his name down would be to invoke the name of a false god. And that perhaps not putting his name is going to deprive him of any extra glory or honor by saying his name. All right, so that was kind of interesting when I cut that. But we don't know who it is. In, in fact, the IVP Bible background commentary says, without specific historical references in the story, it is impossible to associate the narrative with a particular reigning king. It is the practice of the authors of the book of Genesis to not mention any Pharaoh by name. This may have been intentional since Pharaoh was considered by his people to be a god, and the Israelites did not wish to invoke that name. See if the application that you have there, though. The first one that you've got there. If we think about this, the situation with Pharaoh, it's thousands of years removed from us, right? Way back in time. We don't even know who that guy was. Seat of application for us, thousands of years from now, the details of your identity will have faded. Just like Pharaoh's identity has faded, right? So thousands of years from now, the details of your identity will have faded, but your eternal destiny will have already been forever sealed. You have this one life to make the choices you're going to make that is going to seal your your destiny, your eternity, all right? And uh, I would pray that everybody in this room would choose to live out their life and finish the race well for God and, and be God. I'm all yours, and God says, I got a place for you. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? But we all know this world has lots of other people that aren't going to make that, that they're along the way going to give up on the race, and they're not going to fight the good fight, and they're not going to finish the race. They're not going to have a place in heaven with God in his presence so just recognize now this life this is all we get to make those choices to make those choices that will seal whether or not we're going to be forever in God's presence or deprived of God's presence all right Kenneth Matthews he says uh, regarding the Nile River now we're talking about the Nile because Pharaoh's standing by the river obviously that river is the Nile oh we haven't got to that should be verse one Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. So the river is obviously the Nile River. It's the most prominent geographical feature of the land of Egypt. Everybody in Egypt depended on the uh, cycles of the Nile River for for their sustenance. So here's Pharaoh. He's standing by the river. In fact, the river itself is deified in Egyptian thought. The river itself is a god. Kind of weird to think about that. 
that the river's a god? Yeah, in their way of thinking it was. And uh, Kenneth Matthews says, The Nile water system was the most conspicuous feature of Egypt's geography and the primary source of the country's economic and social stability. The Nile was deified in Egyptian religion as the god Hape or Hapi when the Nile was in flood. So regarding this idea of the Nile River being referred to or revered as a, as a god, the seat of application I want you to fill in, you probably already, Esther's already got it, I think. Why worship the creation when you can worship the creator, all right? We got lots of people that uh, you hear disparaging uh, terms being used like tree huggers or whatnot, you know. And I'm not going to disparage God's creation. I mean, it's great. God's creation is great. But why worship the creation when you can worship the creator? All right, it's just a different level. It's a completely different plane. Genesis 41, verse 2. Somebody might reading that one. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Came up out of the river. This is weird. Seven cows come up out of the river. By the way, the mention of seven, you guys are all familiar with that. That's, that's a number you're going to see a lot as you read through your Bible. It sticks out. And here's one of the places. Uh, I don't need to do a whole study on that one right now, but we can next week if you want to do something on just the number seven. But for now, let me just mention that it is a very popular number with the way the Holy Spirit inspires Scripture. You see it a lot. But here you have seven cows. And what's the description of these cows? They're fat, fat cows, fine looking. In fact, the words that are translated as fine looking in the New King James Version, uh, in other versions, will say beautiful. All right, if if a cow can be beautiful, these are beautiful cows. All right, so you got some beautiful cows hanging out down by the riverbanks, right? And they're fat, and they fed in the meadow, or some of your versions will have in the reeds or in the reed beds. All right, so you've got the cows, these beautiful cows. Got the picture in your mind now? And they're, and they're hanging out in the reed beds, hanging out in the you know the edges or the fringe of the river. Seven of them. Oh, by the way, this idea of seven, uh, like I mentioned, uh, having to do a lot with what you're going to see in the Bible, the idea is perhaps that has a lot to do with the seven days of creation. Like that's the first seven, perhaps, that that all the other sevens kind of point back to in a sense. Uh, But this river and the cows, so you've got the river, it's deified. You've got the cows, remember the golden calf? type of thing, cows, symbol of gods as well. So you've got different elements of of false gods here in Pharaoh's dream. So Pharaoh, who himself is supposed to be a god, is dreaming, and he's got got false gods in his dreams, okay? Uh, So he's maybe thinking this might be a connection to the gods. Verse 3, somebody mind reading that one? Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt. And stood by the older cows on the bank of the river. Excellent. Thank you. Don't you love this dream? What a weird dream, right? So what's the description of these cows? There's another seven, but what's their description? Ugly. Ugly cows. And what else? What's the other word? And gaunt. I have a cow and it's so ugly. Remember the old, how ugly was it? (laughs) These cows are so ugly that when Pharaoh recites this dream to Joseph, he'll add the additional information saying there wasn't anything in the land that was as ugly as these cows, all right? That's how ugly these cows. So as beautiful as the other ones were, these are the ugly ones, all right? You got seven beautiful cows, seven ugly cows hanging out in the reed beds by the river, all right? And they're also, this batch, the seven here that are ugly are also described as gaunt, all right? Gaunt is shrunken up, all right? They're skinny. You know, you can picture that with the bones, the hip bone of the cow kind of sticking out. You know, you got that spine sticking out. You got the bones showing right through the skin. They're so 
emaciated, all right? So this is the picture of the cows that I want you to have. By the way, that, that word that's translated ugly there, it's often translated in other places in the Bible as evil. Kind of strange, all right? And then that word for gaunt is also mostly translated as small. In fact, that word for gaunt right here describing the cows is the same word that's used to describe the still small voice of God over in 1 Kings chapter 19. Kind of strange, but I don't know what you do with that, but it's kind of fun to, to look at those. Verse 4, somebody might read in verse 4. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Whoa, <laughs> the dream just got more strange. So the seven skinny, ugly, gaunt cows eat the fat cows. Uh, cows don't eat cows. In case anybody's wondering if that happens in cowdom, all right? Cows don't eat cows. So obviously there's something strange going on here where the skinny cows are eating the fat cows. Pharaoh, when he recounts this dream to Joseph later on, he'll actually say that the skinny cows eat the fat cows, and you would think, oh, now they're fat. They were skinny because they were hungry. Now they eat. They must be fat. He'll actually go out of his way to say, and they didn't look any different. They were still skinny, ugly, gaunt cows, all right? So uh, it doesn't appear to have taken care of their emaciated state. Uh, So the ugly cows eat up the seven fine-looking, or the fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. So right away, you've got this strange situation where Pharaoh's dreaming a dream. In his dream, he's got pagan gods. He's got false gods. But in their worldview, obviously, he's thinking that these are also gods that they would have in their system, belief system. And so you've got this weird dynamic with these cows and with the river going on, and he's confused about what this is going to mean. Now, most of our dreams, and James Montgomery Boyce would say this, most of our dreams are usually an expression of our fears or our fantasies, all right? our desires or the things we're scared about, all right? that most of our dreams might come out of one of those two camps. But this is different. Pharaoh's dream is different. It's given to him by God. All right, so he awakes, he's a little bit confused. He's probably a little troubled as well, because what does it mean, right? Uh, God has impressed upon him the dreams well enough that he can remember them, but what does it mean? Verse 5, somebody might read that one. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Excellent, thank you, Levette. All right, so now he's having another dream. We're going to find that this dream basically parallels the first dream. All right, so here you have the number seven again. And here you have seven heads of grain on one stalk, plump and good. Somebody might reading the next one. Then behold, seven thin heads, lighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. You feel the ominous stuff is coming, right? Oh, dear. You know, we had the seven good ones. For Pharaoh, that's a good sign, right? Because grain is a staple in Egypt. All right, so you've got the cows. They were looking good with the good, healthy, beautiful, fat ones. And then the skinny ones, oh, that didn't turn out so well. Now you've got the seven healthy grains and, oh, now skinny ones. Oh, it's not looking good. I'm afraid this is going to turn out bad. How about verse 7? Somebody might read on that one. The seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh wolf, and indeed, it was a grain. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Yeah, it turned out the same way. Um, grain doesn't eat grain, just in case anybody's wondering. All right, in grain dumb, all right? The skinny grain doesn't eat the fat grain, so this is not natural. Um, imagine, for a second, you being in Pharaoh's place, all right? So imagine being in Pharaoh's position, and your job is, I'm supposed to be the intermediary between God and the people. I'm in charge of all these people. I'm in charge. I'm governing them. I, I rule over all of them, right? And how do you do that? You do that through the Nile River and through the food. Basically, you need those to cooperate because what's going to happen? If your Nile River, you know, something happens to that, 
it's going to be a bad day for you as the person who's supposed to be intermediating between the people and God because they're going to say, you're shirking your responsibilities. You're doing something wrong. If something's wrong with our river or something's wrong with our food. They're going to get upset, right? So your job's going to be a jeopardy. <laughs> so imagine a dream where everything you're supposed to govern and protect is threatened. Everything you're supposed to govern and protect is threatened. That's kind of what's going on for Pharaoh here. Even though he's a god, if he's supposed to be in charge of everything and every, he's looking for everything to be in order, right? I say, and it happens, and now it's not quite going to happen that way. Um, yeah, that's a threat to his job. Verse 8. Somebody might read in verse 8. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them of his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here are uh, two words I want to draw out to you, or two phrases. One is the magicians. All right. So when you hear magicians, I don't want you to think pulling a rabbit out of a hat. All right. I don't want you to think somebody who does a card trick. All right. I don't want you to think somebody who saws a woman in half and separates the boxes and rolls them around and then puts them back together and the woman comes out and she's fine. All right. That's not the magician that we're talking about here. And regarding the wise men, all right, these two groups of people are basically very similar to one another. And their job is to basically help Pharaoh interpret dreams, among other things. They would also come up with spells or incantations or they would uh, create amulets to ward off evil spirits. So this is, this is their forte. This is their arena. Dreams are within their job description. And I suggest if you want something funny, you can go do this. Have you ever gone onto YouTube and you've typed in, and my daughter told me this, you type in, you only had one job, right? Have you ever done that? You only had one job. And you type it out and you you get all these pictures of things that are like, how could somebody do that? Like maybe a street painter, right, that paints the lines on the street. And you see the straight line through the middle of the desert and all of a sudden it just goes, and then it's straight again. And you're like, you only had one job. Your job was to paint a straight line. How could you mess that up? This is supposed to be your job. You don't need to concern yourself with anything else in the world. This is what you do, right? So for these guys, dreams. This is what you do. You're supposed to interpret the dreams. We're going to find that, as you can see at the end of that verse, they can't interpret it. No one could interpret the dreams. Now, it's funny. When we do hear what the interpretation is next week, they're not really tricky. You hear the interpretation, you go, that actually makes a lot of sense. I'm surprised they couldn't come up with that. You only had one job. How could you not come up with that? (laughs) These guys are participants in the occult, all right? We do have representatives of the occult in this day and age. There's still people that are supposed to be really smart that are going to psychics, even in this day and age, even in this society. It's not a third world country here, and they're still looking to psychics to give them wisdom and and to lead them on their way. Um, Yeah, you only have one job, but they couldn't do it here regarding the dreams. Here's what I would say to this uh, seat of application that you've got there. Why turn to one who has limited knowledge and inferior powers when you can turn to the one who has unlimited knowledge and superior powers? Pharaoh surrounds himself with the group that has limited knowledge and inferior powers. Joseph surrounds himself with the one who has unlimited knowledge and superior power. Verse 9. Somebody might reading verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. All right. Thank you, Irene. So the chief butler apparently has been paying attention to this going on. So the magicians are brought in. All right. The wise men are brought in. And who knows? Maybe they tried to give some interpretation and it just wasn't convincing. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. Or maybe they just all threw up their hands and said, We don't know. There is a possibility. God could have blocked their capabilities to interpret even something simple. All right. God can confound the wise, as Paul would say in his English. God has that capability. And God knows what 
needs to happen for Joseph to be summoned, right? So if Pharaoh gets an interpretation from his wise man, that's not gonna, he's not going to need Joseph. He's not going to call for Joseph. It's not going to appeal to him to call for a second opinion, all right? So in this situation, it looks like God is intervening to make it so these guys who have one job can't do it. You know, can't figure it out. Don't know. That's really confusing, Pharaoh. I wish wish we could help you, but we can't. So the cupbearer, paying attention to all this, goes, I had a dream once. <laughs> I had a dream once, and that guy, I wonder if he's still there. That guy, the real hairy guy, uh, I think he was a Hebrew. He was sitting in the prison, in the dungeon. He interpreted, and it came true. Oh, and the, uh, yeah, it came true for the other guy, too, right? So he's remembering, oh! <gasps> I was supposed to say something to Pharaoh, and I never did. Oh, gosh, I hope that guy's still there because he would really come in handy right now, right? (laughs) Perhaps he legitimately forgot. Perhaps he actually did forget Joseph until this moment. Or perhaps he deliberately didn't say anything. Perhaps he held back, and now he's like, oh, you know what? This might come in handy right now. Either way, he tells Pharaoh... Hey, there's this guy. I can tell you about him. This is what happened. Oh, you remember that time two years ago on your birthday when you killed the other guy and you let me have my job back? Yeah, this guy, let me tell you the backstory. He and We both had dreams and he interpreted the dreams for us. Maybe he can help you too. So regarding verse 9 where he says there, I remember my faults. Yeah, that's a pretty big fault, <laughs> right? To forget somebody and leave them in jail for two years. Imagine something you did, some negligence on your part that resulted in somebody spending an unnecessary extra two years in jail. I mean, he's actually there. He's still there. Two years later, he's still in there. So he remembers his faults. By the way, that word that's translated as faults, uh, this is the first time that it appears out of 33 times that we have it, and just about everywhere else it's translated as sins. (laughs) So he's saying, I remember my sins. Uh, And then verse 10, somebody might reading verse 10. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain and the guard, both me and the chief baker. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So he's recounting what happened, right? He's replaying that tape from history. And uh, who was the captain of the guard, by the way? Who have we seen before? Potiphar. All right. So he's another reference to Potiphar there. Verse 11. Somebody might read that. We each had a dream, and one night he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Perhaps this is a painful memory for him right now, because we're getting to the part where I could have been the one that died, but it was the other guy in the cell with me ended up dying. Either way, that's not a great way uh, to have your dream interpreted and have you die as a result of your dream. Verse 12. Somebody might read that one. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dream for us. To each man, he interpreted according to his own dream. Excellent. Thank you. And then uh, verse 13. Somebody might read that one. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Mm, Thank you, Levette. So he's saying it it turned out exactly the way the guy interpreted these dreams for us. So the guy had some some connection with God or he did it on his own. Somehow we had our dreams interpreted by this guy. You had a dream and nobody can provide an interpretation. Maybe we ought to see about getting this Joseph guy out of prison and maybe he can uh, do something for you. He describes him as a Hebrew. You saw that as we were looking at verse 12 that Cindy read. Uh, regarding the mention of Hebrew or the word Hebrew or, or describing somebody as a Hebrew, outside of the Joseph stories here, in, and I'm just containing this to the book of Genesis here, outside of the Joseph in Egypt stories, the only other place that you see the word Hebrew is over in Genesis chapter 14 verse 13 where it talks about Abraham all right and you talk about the the founding father all right the original Hebrew all right uh, that was Genesis 14 13 then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew 
For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. <laughs> what is the context of that? I commend you to Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, if you want to see that. But the original Hebrew uh, being used to describe Abram. Verse 14, somebody mind reading that one? So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So when it says there that they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, all right, that word that's translated quickly right there, we've seen it quite a few times so far as we've been through the book of Genesis. And every time we've seen it so far, it's been translated as ran. All right, so you, when you imagine quick, all right, imagine running as part of you know the way that you understand what this word means. Abraham ran to meet the three strangers on their way to Sodom. Or 18 verse 7, Abraham ran to get the preparations for the meal started for those three strangers. In chapter 24, Abraham's servant ran to meet Rebekah at the well in Padanaram. Verse uh, 20 of chapter 24, after receiving gifts, Rebekah ran to tell her mother. After seeing the gifts, Laban ran to meet the guy with the gifts, right? Yeah. You remember that story there? You've also got Jacob when he came to the well, and he saw Rachel, right? And he met Rachel, and uh, Rachel ran to tell her father, Laban, same guy, all right? And then you had Laban running again out to the well to meet the guy, and hey, come on in, you know? And then in chapter 33, verse 4, upon Jacob's return to the promised land, Esau ran to meet Jacob. So, so far, this word's been translated ran or run every single time that we've seen it up to this point. So that's the kind of quickly that you can imagine. So you can imagine you're going about your, I don't know, dungeon duties. What are you, polishing the links of chain? I don't know what you're doing as in your dungeon duties. But Joseph gets the word, hey, Joseph, get up, get ready. It's time to go. Pharaoh wants to see you. <gasps> what? <laughs> and what does it say? Does, do they whisk him right away? No, they hurriedly prepare him, right? They get him ready. What are some of the things that they do with him? Yeah, he, he gets shaved. What else happens? And he gets a change of clothes, right? So the scraggly beard, remember we were talking about that, right? The Egyptians don't do the scraggly beard thing, all right? So if you're going to go in front of Pharaoh, you're going to need to shave. So he shaves, probably not just the beard, probably his head too. You probably see in the hieroglyphics, you know, uh, the typical Egyptian carved into stone type of thing. They've got the shaved head. They've got the no beard thing going on. All right. Semites, as they're pictured in a lot of those similar things, you see the hair. You see the beards. All right. So this is this is something that, you know, to go in Pharaoh's presence, you got to shave. And then a change of clothing. Do you suppose Joseph just had a change of clothing lying around? No. It's not likely he had his own change of clothing just hanging around. And if he did, it still wouldn't be good enough to go in front of Pharaoh. You're not saving a special robe in the dungeon for that special rainy day, all right? So they've provided him a a special robe for him to wear, a robe that would be fit for him to go and to wear in front of uh, the king of the land, all right? James Montgomery Boyce says regarding this verse right here, he says, I suppose that there is not a character in all the Bible who experienced such sudden and radical reversals of fortune as did Joseph. One day he was his father's favored son, destined to inherit his authority and wealth. And the next day, he was cast into a cistern, menaced by death, and then sold into Egypt as a slave. In Egypt, Joseph gradually rose to a position of authority in Potiphar's household, but in an instant, his affairs were reversed, and he found himself set in irons in the prison of the captain of the guard. One day, he had hopes of deliverance through his friend, the chief cupbearer, but that day was succeeded by many other days of discouragement and despair. And then within hours, he was suddenly shaved and clothed and in Pharaoh's court. Reversals. Reversals of fortunes multiple times in his life, many of which we would have a hard time withstanding. It sounds like this would be difficult. 
to go from rags to riches to rags to riches to rags to riches so many times and, and still keep your bearing. I propose to you, you have to have a good connection with God to be able to keep your bearing in a, in a situation like this. So what I want to do as we're summing up this now and finishing up, I want to say consider for a moment the following having to do with the latest turn of events in Joseph's life. He's in prison, put there largely by the choices of others. And there he tries to make the most of it while waiting day after day, year after year for deliverance. But every morning he wakes up and he's still held captive, still a slave in the dungeon. He's called upon to minister to others, but there often doesn't seem to be anyone to minister to him except for God alone. Seeming opportunities come to share his faith and to witness the power of God and the hope of maybe even experiencing deliverance. But days and weeks and months and years pass and no deliverance comes. Then all of a sudden, without notice or warning, he's whisked away and he's changed. He's made new. The old scruffiness is cut away. He's washed and he's cleaned up. His prison clothes are replaced with a royal robe and he's transformed into one who is fit to stand before the great king. And it all happened suddenly. He went from being summoned to cleaned and changed to standing before the king almost as if in a flash in the twinkling of an eye. My, how quickly things can change once the king sends forth his summons for someone to be brought into his presence. That describes Joseph and his situation thousands of years ago. And what I want to do is I take those words of mine and change a few of the wording to make it something more relevant to us maybe today. Despite the thousands of years separating us from Joseph's situation, consider the similarities in our lives. We are in a prison of sin, put there largely by the choice of others, especially Adam and Eve. And here we try to make the most of it while waiting day after day, year after year for deliverance. But every morning we wake up and we're still held captive, still enslaved in the dungeon of living in a fallen world. We're called upon to minister to others, but there often doesn't seem to be anyone to minister to us except for God alone. Seeming opportunities come to share our faith and to witness the power of God and the hope of maybe even experiencing deliverance. But days and weeks and months and years pass and no deliverance comes. Then all of a sudden, without notice or warning, we are whisked away and we're changed. We're made new. The old scruffiness is cut away. We're washed and we're cleaned up. Our prison clothes are replaced with royal robes and we're each transformed and made to stand before the great king. And it will all happen suddenly. We will have gone from being summoned to cleaned and changed to standing before the king in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. My, how quickly things will change once the king of kings send forth his summons for us to be brought into his glorious presence. And so your last seat of application that I have for you there. How quickly things will change once the king of kings sends forth his summons for us to be brought into his glorious presence. How quickly things will change once the King of Kings sends forth his summons for us to be brought into his glorious presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day. We're in the dungeon of living in a fallen world, looking forward to the day of deliverance. Help us to make the most of our time here. Help us to make the wise choices that we need to make that will affect our destiny for eternity. But help us also, Lord, to look ahead to that glorious day when we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, where we will be 
cleaned, and we will be made fit to stand before you, not in robes of our own, but the robes of righteousness that you'll provide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.